0: Romans chapter 8 is where we are. We're continuing our journey through this feast that Paul's laying out for us. We've got our agape feast after service, our thanksgiving feast, but before we feast on turkey, we feast on his word. And and, and Romans 8 really is that. I would be saying that even if this wasn't our our thanksgiving Sunday. All of scripture is God-breathed. We get that. We know that. That's true. But Romans 8 is special. There's no denying that. I don't know anyone that would argue that. And maybe because it's special in all the ways that it is, it seems to be particularly subject to attack by the enemy. Attack is in distortion, perversion, deformation. Pick, Pick your verb, I don't care. As long as it's something that means misrepresentation of God's truth. Because that's what the enemy does. He twists, he turns, he perverts. It's the best way to lie. We learned that as kids, didn't we? The best way to lie is to start with the truth and just tweak it a little bit. Oh, I'm so sorry I was late. There was an accident on my way to work. It was a fender bender. It was over to the side of the road by the time I got there. And I was already 30 minutes late when when I showed up. But there was an accident on the way to work. That's what I want you to pay attention to. That's a lie, right? I mean, adding, subtracting, shading the truth in a way that creates misunderstanding is a lie. And Satan is masterful at it. Satan's a liar. John 8, 44. He's a liar and the father of lies. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy. John 8, 44. And lying, lying about God's word, lying about who we are in God, lying is one of Satan's best tricks. It's one of the most dangerous tools in his arsenal. And the truth that Paul is going to address this morning is one of Satan's favorite things to lie about. So this morning is going to be a different kind of message. I, I normally, you know this, I normally prefer teaching about to teaching against. I wanna teach for, I don't wanna teach against, but sometimes we have to. I don't like to. I've used the illustration before about how the US Treasury Department trains Secret Service agents who are gonna go after counterfeiters. What they don't do, what you would expect them to do that they don't do, is they don't sit Secret Service agents in front of a big pile of counterfeit money. They don't study the lie. Instead, what they do is study the real thing. Inside out, upside down, backwards, forwards. They inspect, they scrutinize, they examine the paper, the ink, the dyes, the threads, the image. Every detail. They memorize it to the the point where they dream about it. So when they encounter anything that's even a little bit off, the tiniest defect, it'll jump out at them. Because they've so committed themselves to knowing what the real thing is. That, that's, that's how I'd much prefer to teach the Bible and the truth that the Bible presents to us. Hey, here's what's real. Here's what's right. Here's what's genuine so that anything that's not true and real and, and perfect jumps out at you. The problem with that approach, and by the way, I'm not abandoning it. Not, not, not what, we're not leaving verse by verse study of God's Word, because it is the best way to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But but where we run into problems, if that's all we ever do, where we run into problems is when we come into conflict with other pastors, other teachers, who take the same verses that we're teaching, the same verses that we're studying and unpacking together, and have already put a different meaning on them. I don't want to say pull the meaning from them because that would imply that they're getting at the truth, but imposed a different meaning, a different understanding on them. And and it's like a grass stain. Once that wrong understanding gets in, gets ground into us, it can be really hard to get out. Here's another illustration you might have heard. Before the days of messenger RNA and 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 the vaccines that we've Spent too much time thinking about the last few years. Before the days of messenger RNA, what were vaccines made of? Dead viruses, dead or weakened, polio, mumps, Um, rubella, TB, those viruses are made from viruses that are, those vaccines are made of viruses that were killed or greatly weakened. What's the point? The best way to inoculate someone against something is to give them a dead or weak version of the real thing. Best way to inoculate someone against the living word to make sure that someone doesn't catch it, believe it, carry it, Share it is feed them a dead version of it. So this morning I want to talk about two of the lies, two of the perversions, two of the misrepresentations that, that Satan has, has perpetrated on the church. Two lies that twist the glorious truths that we read here in Romans 8 and elsewhere. Disclaimer before we dive in. We're going to get there, but one thing before we do. Some of what we're going to talk about, you might have heard from people who love Jesus a lot. And I don't intend to say that they don't. Some of what we're going to talk about, you may have heard from very sincere, genuine believers who love God very much. I'm not attacking anybody's faith. I'm not intending to to degrade anybody's love of God or the sincerity of their beliefs. The thing is, though, you don't have to be a liar to pass on wrong information. If I say to Rob, Hey, Rob, let's mess with Dakota. Let's tell him his car's on fire. And Pastor Rob comes to you and says, Hey, go tell Dakota his car's on fire. And you go to Dakota and you say, Dakota, your car's on fire. You're not a liar. You, you, you're, you have no intent to deceive You're passing on something you heard from a pastor, for crying out loud. (laughs) Your heart is pure. Your conscience is clear. Your intentions are good. But you passed on a lie. Something that wasn't true. Something that originated from Satan. Sure, Rob brought it to you. Sorry, Rob. (laughs) But it originated from Satan, the father of lies. All lies trace back to him. He's the author. He's he's the author of lying in our lives. Sin traces back to him. Long introduction. Let's talk about what we're talking about. Romans 8. We left off last week in verse 4. Let's actually back up a little bit. We'll take a running start at our passage for the day. Middle of verse 3. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law, verse 4, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace." Because the carnal mind, the natural mind, is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness, Christ's righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now that sounds a little confusing at first, at least to our ears, which is probably why the enemy is able to work with it and make hay from it. But if we can get past Paul's incessant if-then sentence structure, his point is decently straightforward. There's flesh and there's spirit, and neither, never the twain shall meet. There's flesh and spirit, and the two are incompatible, matter and antimatter, eternally at war with each other. Okay, not eternally, eventually God wins. But until then, oil and water, right? Flesh, spirit. You can have one or the other at any given time. You cannot walk in both at the same time. For the unbeliever, for the person who doesn't know God, for the person who hasn't said yes to Jesus, the person who has never said, I'm a sinner, I need to be forgiven, and the only way that's going to happen is through the cross of Jesus Christ, that's bad news. That's tragic news, in fact. Verse 8 Look at it again. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. No service, no sacrifice, no song, no prayer, no amount of good deeds can please God. Nothing we can do can satisfy the debt our sin incurred. None. Our righteousness, the sum of it, the heap of it piled all together, it's a mountain of filthy rags. But when we're born again, verse 9, everything changes. When we say yes to Jesus, our debt is paid. That's mercy. We don't get the punishment we deserve because Jesus bore it for us on the cross. And when we say yes, we trade places with him. He receives our punishment, we receive his righteousness, which takes us to grace. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Not only are we forgiven, but we accrue benefits when we say yes to Jesus. Chief among them, being indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, that comes with the territory. That's part of what it is to be a believer. You and I are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. God lives in us. He's surety. He's the down payment, the earnest on our inheritance, on our eternity. And that's an eternity that Paul says in verse 10 is guaranteed. These bodies are going to die. We're going to go back to dust. Because these bodies are sinful, are defective. They have a sin nature. They, they came from the manufacturer, already broken. They're not fit for heaven Not because God wrecked our bodies, because our sin wrecked our bodies. But glorified bodies are waiting for us. Bodies that Jesus has prepared for us. Read verse 11 again. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. One way to understand that, one thing that Paul is saying is that either at the rapture or when we go home to the Lord, or, sorry, at the rapture, whether we're there for the rapture or whether we die ahead of time. We trade these bodies for glorified bodies, bodies like Jesus had in his resurrection. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. We talk about the mansions waiting for us in heaven, and we often think about those mansions in terms of dwelling places. It's going to be a house. It's going to be a cottage. It's going to be, you know, I want mine to be a treehouse looking out over a vista. But another way to understand that is today we dwell in tents, temporary dwelling places that, that leak, that let the rain in and let the heat out. Jesus is preparing mansions, permanent dwelling places for us. That's one way to understand verse 11, but there's another layer to it. There's a, there's a, a second implication. We said the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our eternity, right? That's Ephesians 1.14. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on our eternity. In what sense? We have a little bit of that mansion life right now. Paul just said glorification is waiting for us, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, the the Spirit who dwells in us right now, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, verse 11, makes us alive in Christ today. We don't have to wait for bodies that are alive in Christ. Our spirit has been renewed. Our spirit is alive in Christ. And our spirit can override our sinful flesh. Part of being alive in Christ, part of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can choose to walk in the Spirit and overcome the sin nature, the limitations, the cravings, the desires of our flesh right here and right now. Long story less long, we can live resurrection lives today, loving, serving, pleasing the Lord in a way that we couldn't before, verse 8. We literally couldn't before we were saved. We could do nothing that would make God smile. And now we can. And this is where we're going to pause. I get there's a lot of implications to what we just read that we haven't touched on yet. But we said we were going to take this morning to address two misunderstandings, two misrepresentations of God's words, lies that Satan uses to steal, kill, and destroy. He kills the truth. He steals our joy. He destroys peace that we should have. And here's how he does it. He puts a question in front of us. Okay, if you're in Christ... And the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, because Paul just said that He does, and you have the power to overcome your sin nature because that's what it means. You have the power to not sin. How come still sinning? You must not be saved. People ask me about this a lot. A lot, a lot. I've, I've gotten the question three or four times in the last two weeks What if I still sin as a believer? Is God mad at me? Will God reject me? Has he rejected me? Does the fact that I still sin mean that I've never come to God? That I wasn't the Christian that I thought I was ever? People ask me this with some regularity. I still sin a lot, Patrick. I I think I might sin more now than before I was a Christian. Does that mean that I'm not really saved? Verse verse 6 says to be carnally minded is death. Am I dead? Am I dead in my sins? Carne, flesh, carne asada. we got a feast waiting. When I'm I'm carnally minded, like like right now, (laughs) when I'm paying attention to my flesh, when I'm satisfying my flesh, when I'm sinning, the question that Satan wants to provoke us with Are you proving right now that you're not saved or that you never were saved? And that's not, it is not, it's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying in this passage is now we have a choice, a choice we didn't have before. We can walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh. We can't do both at the same time, but we can choose one or the other. Before we had no choice. Before it was all flesh all the time. Before we had a sin nature, that's all we had. We weren't indwelt by the Spirit. We couldn't walk in the Spirit. Now we can, if we choose to. Before we were saved, we were at war with God. Verse 7. That's how we were born. It was the only option available to us, but now, now we're not. If we're in Christ, Romans 5 verse 1, if we're in Christ, we're at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross. He settled things. He paid our debt. We're at peace with God. But we are still sometimes very, very much at war with ourselves, aren't we? There's a battle going on in our hearts between those two natures. The sin nature of our flesh, the spirit nature of our renewed soul. And we can choose to live, to walk in the spirit, to live that resurrection life. Or we can choose to walk in the flesh the way we did before we were saved. Both choices are available to us. We can do either one at different times. And we do both of those at different times. There are people who try to tell you, no, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you won't sin anymore. I mean, maybe a little and maybe for a while, but not for long and not very much. It doesn't make sense. If that wasn't a choice, the choice between walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh, if that wasn't a real choice, then Peter, James, John, Jude, Paul wasted a lot of ink. Because a lot of their letters are devoted to exhorting us as believers, why walk in the Spirit? As Christians, put on the mind of Christ. Yeah, you're saved by grace, set your mind on things above. Don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You can, but you shouldn't. You don't have to. Stop. I mean, on and on and on, these guys go. Every New Testament author. I can't think of an exception again and again. Why? Why? Because they know what we know experientially, believers still sin, and we don't stop being Christians when we do. That doesn't satisfy some people. Some people are really committed to the idea that they're not saved. Unbelievers—I mean, believers sin, but unbelievers sin too, right? I mean, I mean, okay, you're telling me that I can be a Christian and sin, but but I sin, so maybe I'm not a Christian. Because people who aren't Christians think, yeah, it's kind of their defining quality. <laughs> well, sometimes I feel like it's my defining quality. So maybe I was never saved. Okay, maybe. But I'm going I'm to say I doubt it. And the reason I doubt it, if I'm talking to a person who cares that much about the question, the reason I doubt that they're, that they're as, as lost as they think they are is they care about the question. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is conviction. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction pushes us toward God. Condemnation pulls us away from God. Satan's ministry, if you want to call it that, is condemnation. Satan says, just wait till your father gets home. Oh, are you going to get it. He's going to be so ashamed of you. He isn't going to want anything to do with you. He's probably going to kick you out. That's the voice of condemnation. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is conviction. It's the Holy Spirit saying, okay, you got to tell Dad about this. you got to tell him now. It's going to be okay as long as you have the conversation. Have the conversation. It's going to be all right. Condemnation pulls us away from God. Conviction drives us into God's arms. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is conviction. And while there's different ways to understand that, the fact that someone's sin still bothers them, if it does, is a pretty good indication the Holy Spirit is in them. Pointing them away from sin and toward God and toward the life that God intends for them. The life that God purchased for them on the cross. Now, if someone is still concerned about it, if you're here this morning, if you're listening online and you're still concerned after everything that I just said, easy enough to do something about it, Easy enough to settle the matter. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Romans 10.9, believe in your heart, confess with your lips that Jesus died for your sin. If you're concerned about your salvation, do something about it. Do you believe that Jesus was God who came as a man and died in your place for your sin, because you had sin. Because you needed forgiveness for your sin, and the only way to be forgiven is if someone else suffered in your place, paid your penalty, satisfied your debt. If you believe Jesus did that for you, say amen. Okay, You believe it, you say it, that settles it. And the sin you sin tomorrow... Or next week, the sin you leave, the sin you sin before you leave here today, if you go set Rob's car on fire, because Dakota said, let's get him back, (laughs) it doesn't change it. Sin doesn't change our eternal destination. Our eternal destination when we're born is hell. Jesus changes it to heaven. Sin never changes our eternal destination. Sin doesn't change the fact that we're God's sons and daughters. When we're born, we're God's creation. When we accept Jesus, we become his sons and daughters. Sin doesn't change the relationship. You are saved. If you're saved, you're saved. If you've been set free, you've been set free. You're a child of God now and forever. The sin we sin as as children of God doesn't change the fact that we're children. The story of the prodigal son... He went out and wallowed in the mud. He didn't stop being a son. Think about it. It's almost a logical necessity. We didn't do anything to earn salvation. Verse 8 just said that. We didn't do anything to earn salvation. We couldn't. Jesus did it while we were sinners. If we didn't do anything to earn it, then how can we do anything to unearn it? Jesus came knowing we were going to sin. He died for us anyway. Jesus came knowing we were going to keep sinning after we were saved. He died for us anyway. Those sins too. Now some of you are going to say, okay, Patrick, what about free will? Are you saying that God is going to hold me and save me against my will? That if I make a a thoughtful decision to walk away from God that he's not going to let me? First of all, I think it's academic. I don't think that a heart that's truly saved is capable of that, but but I might be wrong. And if I am wrong, yeah, I think that God esteems our free will really, really highly. Scripture teaches that. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the possibility of sinning our way outside of God's grace. And Scripture tells us we cannot, we simply cannot do that. But but, but verse 6 says to be carnally minded is is death. Okay, I know it does. But we have to understand, any given verse, we have to understand in the context of the entirety of Scripture. We have to understand verse 6 in light of everything else we read about salvation. We have to understand it in light of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him will not perish, but have what kind of life? Everlasting life. Not temporary life. Not life as long as you don't screw it up. Everlasting life. Romans 8. Look down at the bottom of Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 38. I'm persuaded neither death nor life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have it because of Jesus. Nothing can separate us from it, from our salvation. Not any created thing. Question, are you a created thing? I hope you are, because there's only two categories, creator and creation. And if you're confused about that, you're confused about some other stuff. (laughs) We are created. We cannot separate ourselves from the love of God. Paul just said so. Ephesians Flip a couple, keep a finger in Romans. Flip a couple pages, a couple chapters to the right. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. I can't make you, but I'm going to encourage you to because this is, this is worthy of underlining. This is worthy of a note in your margin. Ephesians 1 verse 13 reference this earlier. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. You heard the gospel. You responded to the gospel. The gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed like a letter. Sealed like a document. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we mess up? No. Until we sin too much? No. Until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. God guarantees that having been justified, he will see us through this period of being sanctified, and one day he will see us glorified. He just told us he's going to do it. Go another chapter, go to Ephesians 2. How many times since we started our study in Romans have we read Ephesians 2, verse 8? By grace, you've saved through, uh, by grace you have been saved through faith in that, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. We emphasize the saved by grace through faith part again and again. Underline that gift of God part. That's interesting because if we then go back to Romans and we go to Romans 11.29, we read something interesting about the gifts of God. Romans 11.29, we read that gifts of God are irrevocable. One way, one direction. Ephesians 2.8, our salvation is a gift of God. Romans 11:29 no takebacks. Jude says the same thing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty dominion and power both now and forever. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Jude just said what John said, what Paul said. Being saved, staying saved, doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. He will get us across the finish line. Some of us will stagger across the finish line. Some of us will be thrown across the finish line, but we will get there. I could keep going. If you really want me to, I will. Grab me. I mean, I'm serious. Grab me after service. I, I, will, I want to do whatever it takes to go with whatever length I need to, to convince you, you cannot sin your way out of God's grace. You simply cannot. That's a lie. Some of you are yawning. Patrick, I know this. I knew this when I walked in. Is this really the best use of a Sunday morning? I think it is, obviously. <laughs> but, 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 but I've got three reasons that I say that. One is, I wasn't making it up. I wasn't, I wasn't lying when I said three or four times in the last two weeks, I've had people come to me, several of them in tears over this issue. And I know if some are coming to me, more are struggling. And if as a result of talking about this morning, even one of them is freed from the doubt and despair that comes with believing this lie, if, if, if just one person can have that doubt and despair replaced with peace and joy, it's a good use of a morning. But but here's the second reason. If you're saying, yeah, yeah, eternal security. Once saved, always saved. I get it. If you came here knowing that, believing that, here's my question. Can you explain it to someone who doesn't already believe that or agree with that? Because here's the thing. The number of people that I see struggling over this issue tells me the people out there pushing the idea that we can send ourselves out of heaven are doing a better job of teaching their lie than we are teaching the truth. Than we are. Because it's our job, yours and mine. There are people clinging to the idea that they can lose their salvation, that, that they, can, they can sin so much so bad so, so often they can make God change his mind and kick him out of, kick him out of his love. And it's paralyzing. It's so destructive. It breeds anxiety. It breeds depression. And I don't want it to just be me pushing back that tidal weave of untruth. One guy, one day, devoting one service to talking about it. It should be all of us, it should be all of us speaking to all of them all the time. Not just, oh, you know, my pastor taught a message about that. Like, I don't know, it was three weeks ago, four weeks ago? Let's see. It was before Halloween. No, it was after Halloween. It was before. Well, go to the website. And I don't remember what. It's calvarychapel.wichita. Just Google it. Look for the message. It's there somewhere. No. No, take the ball and run with it. Sunday morning is supposed to be about equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4:12. That's not all we do, but it's a big part of what we do. And we have to understand that that's a big part of why we're here. Equipping happens here. The work of the ministry we're being equipped for mostly happens out there. And we can do it. We can do it. You and me, we, because we have everything we need. We have all things, Rob reminded us last Wednesday, pertaining to life and godliness. We have the truth. And verse 7, we have the Holy Spirit. I said three reasons. Some people are struggling with this. Some people in here are struggling with this. Some people out there in our lives are struggling with this. Here's the third thing. Every one of us, sooner or later, is going to struggle with this. If you've never doubted your salvation, I envy you. And it's a sin, and I'll repent of it in a little bit. But, but if you've never doubted your salvation, you're going to. I promise you, you will. You're going to question, was I ever saved? Am I still saved? And when that happens, not if, when that happens, you got to be able to remind yourself of what's true. Not just parroting something that you heard somebody say, but reminding yourself of an understanding that you gained. You need to be able to preach the gospel to yourself. That's how we defeat the lies of the enemy. That's lie number one. Let's spin the car around. I said two lies. Let's consider a lie that takes us in the opposite direction. First lie, first bucket of lies, cat- there's variations, right? First category of lies, no such thing as a carnal Christian. If, if you're sinning, then you're not saved. Being saved means that you're not going to sin, or at least not often and not for long, or you won't be saved for very long. Second lie, you can be saved and sin indefinitely. You can be saved and always walk in the flesh and never walk in the Spirit, and most importantly, never care whether you're walking in the flesh or in the Spirit. Hang on, Patrick, I'm confused. I thought you just said we couldn't send our salvation away. I did, because we can't. But that assumes we had it in the first place. And it's it's worth asking that question, because look again at verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But what if it doesn't? Now, if anyone does not have... Sorry, what if he doesn't? Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And what's the implication? If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Holy Spirit is in us, if he the person of God is in us, he won't be content to just hang out in a sinful carcass indefinitely. He won't be content to be ignored, trampled, overruled. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through a spirit who dwells in you. Paul tells us in Romans 7, verse 4, we're raised from the dead to bear fruit to Christ. Romans 7, 4, we're raised from the dead, in part at least, to bear fruit for God. Jesus has given us a new life in a very real sense. We are his fruit. We're the product of his vineyard. He uses that metaphor. But what we have to remember, the nature of fruit, true fruit, healthy fruit, the nature of fruit is that it bears more fruit. Pastor Chuck had a a similar expression. He would talk about the nature of healthy sheep is to beget sheep. But Paul's going with fruit, so let's stay with that. Fruit, if it's nourished, fruit, if it's planted and watered and cared for, bears more fruit. That's the nature of fruit. It's what fruit does. And it's what Jesus tells us to expect. If you abide in me, John 15, 18, you'll bear much fruit. In fact, you will be known, he says, Matthew 7, 16. You will be known by fruit. If you abide in me, John 15, 8. I said 18, 15, 8, you'll bear much fruit. And we'll be known, Matthew 7, 16, by our fruit. A true disciple is known by the fruit he or she bears. That's our distinguishing quality. The distinguishing, the defining quality of the unbeliever is sin. The defining quality of the believer is is fruit. If we are in Christ, if we are indwelt by the Spirit, fruit happens. All day, every day? No. But not never. How much fruit? How often? that's, That's a function of how consistently we walk in the Spirit. Remember, we have that choice. We can walk in the spirit, we can walk in the flesh. Fruit is a function of how committed we are to walking in the spirit, abiding in the vine. Because we have a choice. We have a choice. So so our fruit will vary based on how often we make that choice. Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. Some will reproduce a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Your mileage may vary. But notice the option that Jesus didn't mention. None was not a category. And and I'm camping out here this morning because we all have that friend, we all have that person we know who prayed the prayer. They prayed the prayer, they raised their hand, but we haven't seen any change. And we wonder, what does that mean? Hopefully it means we haven't seen any change yet. There hasn't been any fruit yet. Because change can take time. Our sanctification is a process. And and I remember remember being encouraged as a young believer by the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, Jesus raised from the dead, in John 11, Lazarus, that one. Came out of the tomb. Jesus called him out, raised him from the dead, called him out, still tangled up in the grave clothes, stumbling around. Didn't know where he was going, what he was doing. He was a danger to himself and others. Wasn't helping anybody. And our new life in Christ can be like that for a while. So your friend, my friend, who prayed a prayer, they could be a Lazarus. Stumbling around, they'll get it figured out. Our friend could be a prodigal who, who, who received the truth and then decided to go roll around in the mud some more, return to the scene of the crime, hopefully to, to find satisfaction in the flesh that alluded to them before. You know? Do what you always did, get what you always got. Our friend could be a Lazarus, our friend could be a prodigal, or or our friend could be someone who went through the motions of receiving salvation but never did. They prayed at all the right times, they sang all the right songs, they stood and sat in unison with the rest of us, but they never verse 9, they never knew God. They like the idea of God because who doesn't? But they like sin even more. That's the question we need to learn to ask. Hey, what do you think about Jesus? That's a good first question. But the person who says, Oh, I think Jesus is cool. Jesus is just all right with me. Okay, what do you think about Jesus and your sin side by side? Because there are those who will accept an invitation to pray a prayer to have a relationship with God because, hey, if it only takes a prayer, why not? But if in their heart they're thinking, as long as I can still have my sin... As long as I can be the person I am, doing the things that I am, prioritizing the life that I want, and and, and have God on top of that, that's okay. The thing is, God doesn't work like that. Verse 7, "...the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God." And if we say, God, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to be saved, I'm willing to have your spirit come and live with me, the condition is i still got to have my sin, God will wait. We can't say that we're surrendering to God and then reserve the right to war with God at the same time. How would that work? How would that work in Ukraine if, if, if Russia said, hey, you know what, we're, we're, we're going to surrender, we're not going to fight anymore. The resistance is too much, it's not worth it. We're going to lay down our arms, except, hey, just kidding, we're going to keep shooting. You can't have both, it's one or the other. We do our friends a disservice when we tell them, hey, receive Jesus into your heart. Jesus never says that. Jesus never says to anyone, hey, you really need to get saved. What Jesus says, what he says again and again, is follow me follow me. And where Jesus always leads, verse 11, where the spirit of Jesus always leads is away from sin. Do we still sin? Absolutely. I'm not unsaying anything I said earlier. Do we still stumble? Stumble, you bet. Do we even still sometimes slide back for a time? Sadly, yes. But the person who has never moved forward, who's never gained any ground in Christ to slide back from, was probably never saved. And we need to tell him that. Can't judge the heart. But Matthew seven sixteen says we should judge the fruit. The person who has no fruit to show, the person who has continued to live an ongoing, uninterrupted, unrepentant life of sin... Is quite probably someone who was never indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we need to tell them that. John, sorry, 1 John 3 6, whoever abides in him, in Jesus, does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. John, by sin here, John means habitual sin, unrepentant sin, ongoing sin. If we abide in him, we won't. If we do, Did we ever belong to him, is the question John asks. If the Holy Spirit hasn't changed you, the Holy Spirit isn't in you. I couldn't find the source of the quote, but I remembered the line. If the Holy Spirit hasn't changed you, then the Holy Spirit isn't in you. Doesn't mean he's left you. Means he was probably never there. If the Holy Spirit is in us, he doesn't go anywhere. We're not like Israel. We don't have to pray like David, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. In fact, we shouldn't. Because he's told us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the way that he delivers on that promise is to dwell in us. So wherever we go, there he is. So if the Holy Spirit isn't in us, convicting us, changing us, one of two possibilities. We've decided to start ignoring him and our conscience has been seared, calloused over we don't sense him, we don't hear him anymore, or he was never there in the first place. And if he was never here in our heart, then that person isn't going to be here in our fellowship for very long. John says this as well, 1 John two nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us. They were not of us. Like we said earlier, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is conviction. Those who say, "I, I don't want any of that, those who choose to ignore, disregard the conviction of the Holy Spirit, probably don't want to hang around a place where the Holy Spirit is very, very present. I, I get that the Holy Spirit is, is, is omnipresent, but the Holy Spirit is present in a special way when the body of Christ, it dwelt by the Spirit of God, comes together. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We sang that earlier. That's 2 Corinthians 3:17. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, the unrepentant soul doesn't want to be reminded again and again that it's in bondage. Two big lies. Let's wrap this up. Two lies to know, to recognize, to be ready to defeat. Peter says, 1 Peter 3.15, Be ready to give everyone a reason for the hope that's within you. Two applications of that this morning. The first is be ready to tell the person who's despairing, who's doubting and despairing their salvation, why they can be sure that they're saved. They can be sure that they are saved or they can be sure that they can be saved. And having been saved will be forever saved. (laughs) Be ready to give every wooden reason for the hope that's within you because it can be in them. The second, be ready to tell the unrepentant sinner, the one who's not following Christ and not caring about it even a little bit, why they should be very concerned that the hope that dwells in you isn't in them, but can be. Be ready to give everyone a reason for the hope that's within you. Every time I quote that verse, mostly, almost every time, I point out one thing. The fact that we're supposed to be ready suggests that someone at any time might ask. Be ready to give a reason. Why? Someone might ask. Why would someone ask? They're not going to. They wouldn't. They won't. Unless they see something they don't understand. Unless they see something that provokes them. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to provoke the world to jealousy. Be ready to give everyone a reason doesn't just mean be equipped with an answer. It means that. If it didn't mean that, then we've wasted a morning. But it also means give people a reason to ask for a reason. Be walking in the Spirit, in other words. Because if we're walking in the Spirit... We're doing something that the natural person cannot do. We're doing something that the flesh doesn't understand. And we're giving them a reason to ask so that we can tell them why. So that we can tell them who. Be walking in the Spirit. Be choosing between Spirit and flesh. Be choosing Spirit. We have the choice, Paul reminded us this morning. We get to choose. And if we choose to walk in the Spirit, then the conversations about the Spirit who dwells in us, that they'll find us. If we choose to walk in the Spirit, the conversations about the Spirit who dwells in us will find us, maybe as soon as Thursday, sitting around a Thanksgiving table, maybe even sooner. How do I walk in the Spirit? That's where Paul is going. That's what Paul is going to talk about next week and in subsequent weeks. Paul doesn't mention the Holy Spirit before chapter 8. But now that we've gotten to chapter 8, he can't stop talking about him. Because everything that he's been saying, justification and sanctification, and, and, and everything that he's been unpacking about the gospel, now he's, he's told us the what. Now he's telling us the how. He's telling us the who. So Paul, Paul is going to talk to us next week about how to walk in the Spirit. But, but here's the short answer. Decide you want to. Ask God to show you and do what he tells you. Walking in the spirit, decide that you want to. Ask God to show you. Follow where he leads you. We don't have to wait. In fact, as the worship team comes back up, we we can pray right now. And we can pray throughout the day. And we can pray every day. Father, what is it to walk with you? What is it to to walk with you here? Where is your spirit leading me in this place? What is it to worship you right now? What can I offer you that will glorify you? What is it to love people in this place? In this time. The people who are in front of me. What does love look like? What is it to crucify my flesh? Father, push aside my flesh. Live your life through me. I'm willing. Have your way with me. I surrender. Glorify yourself in me. My life is yours. It was purchased with your blood. Lead me in the way that I should go. Empower me. Have your way.